We'll turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon in the book of Acts. We take a little break this week as we are celebrating the sacrament of baptism from our study of 1 Corinthians. We turn now to chapter 2 of Acts, and I'll be reading verses 14 through 39. This is God's holy word as he inspired Luke to record this part of his covenant history. And so we know that because it is inspired by God, it is therefore infallible, it is inerrant. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's word, even as we have read it and sung it this morning already. We now read God's word in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 39. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, And his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, 
and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its proclamation and its hearing this morning. Well, it's not my intention today to exposit that passage. In fact, if I were preaching through Acts, I probably would have broken that passage up a little bit. Rather, I'm going to preach on the topic of baptism, which seems appropriate today, uh, using verses, uh, really verse 39, as our uh, point from which we'll jump off. And specifically, I want to address the biblical practice of infant baptism. Uh, Many Christians today would find it odd that I would say that this is a biblical practice, and I want you to be able to defend it uh, when you're talking to your brothers and sisters uh, who are of a more Baptist uh, bent. And so such Christians would find what I just uh, said and what just happened here this morning to be strange and unorthodox. However, in light of Scripture and church history, we find that this practice is completely biblical and orthodox. Uh, To be more accurate, the practice commonly called infant baptism uh, really should be called the baptism of covenant children. Uh, We don't practice, quote-unquote, infant baptism uh, in any sense in which we would just be indiscriminately baptizing babies. Uh, There were times that I served as a chaplain during my uh, seminary education in a hospital, and sometimes someone would want a baptism for a little baby in the hospital, often one that was uh, severely ill. Of course, I wasn't uh, yet ordained to do any baptisms anyway at that point, Uh, but uh, we would see that that that's not quite appropriate. We don't uh, just indiscriminately baptize any uh, baby of anyone who requests it, but it needs to be the children of believers, covenant children. We do practice the baptism of covenant children because that practice is warranted by the principles that we find in Holy Scripture. Simply put, the children of believing parents are in the covenant. You'll notice in the sermon notes in your uh, bulletins, I I didn't leave a lot of room for you to take notes because I wanted you to to have all of the points that I'm going to make here, all the points of this argument But simply put, the children of believing parents are already in the covenant. They're considered a part of the visible covenant people of God. And those children born to believing parents are in that covenant. Those who, as we did this morning, are adopted by believing parents. Those whose parents become believers. They already have the children and they become believers. Those children are themselves uh, to be baptized and they become Hopefully, we pray, eventually, communicant members. When their parents are baptized and become communicant members, then their children are covenant children. So it's my purpose today to show that the Bible teaches that such children are members of the visible church, of God's covenant people, and are thus entitled to receive the sacrament of baptism. So in our reading from Acts 2, Christ had recently ascended to heaven. About ten days after that, He sent the Holy Spirit upon the church to empower the church, the apostles' ministry, as he had promised them. 
Uh, this was at the time of the Feast of Weeks. It was also commonly called Pentecost, when Jews had gathered from distant lands to Jerusalem. Many of them that came from far and wide might have, have come even for Passover and stayed the several weeks until the time of seven weeks, in fact, until the time of the Feast of Weeks. The believers in Christ were gathered together when the Holy Spirit made his presence known to them by the sound of a rushing mighty wind, Luke tells us, and by tongues as of fire coming and resting upon each of those disciples. And the sound of that wind drew a great crowd, including many of these people who had grown up in foreign lands, speaking various languages. And the disciples, most of whom were Galileans who had never studied any foreign languages, uh, were able to speak in the native tongues of all of those people who were gathered there. They proclaimed the mighty works of God in those tongues. And this miracle then attested to the fact that these disciples were speaking a true message from the true God. And some locals, however, who were unaware that the Christians were speaking real languages, it just sounded like gibberish to them, accused them of being drunk. At that point, Peter stood up and addressed the crowd, first saying, as we read this morning, that these people are not drunk, as you suppose, but rather they're participating in the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which he then quoted. And he then proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to the crowd. He called Jesus God's Holy One, saying he was unjustly put to death as a sinner. His resurrection confirmed the truth of who he was and who he claimed to be. He was the Lord whom David saw being seated at the right hand of God. The one who is both truly God and truly human. And upon hearing this gospel and knowing that they had been complicit, many of them, in the death of Jesus, in fact, any who is a sinner recognizes that I was also complicit in the death of Jesus, for he was put to death for my sins. Upon hearing that gospel, Luke tells us these listeners were cut to the heart. That's what he says. Now that's a way of saying what we in theological language would call that they were effectually called. That God cut them to the heart with the preaching of his word. The gospel had reached their hearts. As Martin Luther told his students, all we can do is get the gospel to people's ears. It takes the Holy Spirit to do that. So the Holy Spirit is at work here, not only just among the people who are already disciples of Jesus, but among these who are now cut to the heart. And so they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter answered them in verses 38 and 39, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. So that's talking about Gentiles being called into the church. As many as the Lord our God will call. But notice the promise there that Peter is speaking of, he says, is to you and to your children. Well, what promise is that, we might ask? Well, from the historical context, especially the ancient rabbinical texts, we can see that in this period, if a Jew said the promise, and not a promise, but the promise, 
And he didn't put any qualifier on it, like saying the promise to David or the promise to Jeremiah that the exile would last 70 years, but just said the promise. He actually meant the promise God made to Abraham. That's the big promise from the Jewish perspective in that day. So what was that promise? Well, we find several details of the promise that God made to Abraham and aspects of it scattered throughout various statements God makes in the book of Genesis. The most significant element of that promise is found in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, where he says to Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Galatians three sixteen tells us that, that that seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ particularly, who calls a people to himself out of every nation. But remember what we read earlier from Genesis 17 this morning. The Lord gave his covenant promise to Abraham and his descendants. Verse 7 from Genesis 17, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Paul in Galatians 3.26 tells us that everyone who has faith in Christ, everyone who belongs to Christ, is a child of God, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 29, Galatians 3.29, Paul says this meant that we who belong to Christ are actually Abraham's heirs. So this promise includes all who have faith in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, Paul says. That's the same promise that Peter's talking about, the promise. And Peter says it belongs to the heirs of Abraham and to their children. So everyone, Jew or Gentile, who shares the faith of Abraham is an heir of Abraham, and this promise is to you and to your children. Now, in Genesis 17, we see that the outward sign of that covenant that God commanded at that time was circumcision. Let's consider what Paul has to say in Colossians 2.11. In him, in Christ that is, you were also, he's talking to Christians, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So believers in Jesus, Paul is saying there, have received circumcision, whether they are physically circumcised, whether they were Jews or not, whether they're male or female and can be circumcised or not physically, it's a circumcision, he says, that's made without hands. In other words, it's not a physical condition, it's a spiritual condition. It's the inward state to which outward circumcision had always pointed. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So in other words, this is the gracious act of God. And that outward circumcision pointed to that. Deuteronomy 10.16, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. Jeremiah 4.4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your hearts. So this is an inner condition that's simply signified by that particular outward sign. So Romans 2.29, Paul says, He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the Old Covenant period, the, the outward sign of that inward change 
of that spiritual condition was physical circumcision of believers like Abraham and of all the males in the believer's household. Remember we read uh, anyone born or anyone even bought, so a servant or a slave that's bought and comes into the household. And Paul tells us, though, that we now have a different outward sign that points to the exact same thing, a sign of entrance into the covenant people. Colossians 2, I'll read verse 11 again, and also verse 12. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism. You're joined to Christ's death in baptism and also therefore will be joined to him in his resurrection if you have received that same inward change to which baptism points, to which circumcision used to point. So since Christ has come, baptism is the outward sign which points to the same inward renewal to which circumcision pointed. And circumcision was not limited only to people who had shown that inward renewal by their outward actions or professed faith, but it was for their children as well. So before Christ came to establish the new covenant, it was circumcision, now it's baptism. And again, notice that the outward sign belonged to Abraham's people and to their children. And likewise, baptism belongs to the people of Abraham who by faith are heirs according to the promise, as Paul says in Galatians 3, and to their children. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14, Paul is speaking about a marriage in which a spouse has become a believer. Of course, Christians are are told that we should marry within the faith. But sometimes you'll, you'll find is that either people disobey that, or uh, more commonly in Paul's day, what you would have is that you have a couple of pagans, a couple of people who are not believers in Christ, and one of them becomes a believer. Now what do they do? And Paul's addressing that. He says, by the way, that, that that's not an excuse for divorce. If the unbeliever leaves voluntarily, then, then you're free. But otherwise, the believer is not to use that as an excuse to break the marriage covenant. But in that context, he says... For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would not be, or rather, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So he's presuming that the Corinthians understand their children are holy. We don't have time to unpack all of that verse, but for our purposes here today, notice that the apostle says the children of believers are indeed holy. What's it mean to be holy? Well, it doesn't mean that every child of a believing parent becomes a believer any more than it meant that every person born to ancient Israel became a believer either. But God yet called Israel his holy people. But as with Israel, it does mean that the children of believers are set apart from the world. That's what being holy is. It's being set apart in some way unto God as part of God's covenant people in this case. So just as all the males of Abraham's household were set apart and received the sign of being God's holy people, the children of believers today are considered to be in the same covenant and receive the new covenant sign. In the New Testament, therefore, we see the same principle actually practiced in regard to baptism that was practiced in the Old Testament 
in regard to circumcision. In Genesis 17, when Abraham received the covenant sign, we read this morning, his household, every male eight days old and older, uh, had to receive the same covenant sign. In Acts 16, we find two instances in which Paul and his companions engage in the baptism of entire households. Paul and his companions have arrived in the city of Philippi in Macedonia. Luke tells us in verse 14, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us as they were preaching the gospel. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now understanding how uh, property rights worked in those days, uh, the fact that Lydia runs her own business suggests pretty strongly that she was probably a widow. If she had sons, they were not yet old enough to have taken over the business themselves. So she is a head of a household. But in verse 15, we read, immediately after Luke tells us that she believed the gospel, he says this, And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So when the head of the household became a believer, the whole household received baptism. Just as in the Old Covenant, when the head of the household became a believer, the whole household received circumcision. Later in the chapter, when the Philippian jailer is converted also, in verse 33 we're told, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. As John Calvin writes, Now everyone may see that infant baptism was by no means fashioned by man, resting as it does on such firm approbation of Scripture, nor is their silly objection plausible that there is no evidence of a single infant's ever being baptized by the hands of the apostles. For even if this is not expressly related by the evangelists, still because infants are not excluded when mention is, is made of a family being baptized, who in his senses can reason from this that they were not baptized? If such arguments were valid, women should similarly be barred from the Lord's Supper, since we do not read that they were admitted to it in the apostolic age. So, in other words, he's saying there's no explicit mention of women taking communion in the New Testament. So, if we were to follow that principle that many follow with baptism, then we would have to say, well, women can't take communion. He says, but here we are content with the rule of faith. For when we weigh what the institution of the Supper implies... It is also easy to judge from this to whom the use of it is to be granted. We observe this also in baptism. Indeed, when we pay attention to the purpose for which it was instituted, we clearly see that it is just as appropriate to infants as to older persons. For this reason, infants cannot be deprived of it without open violation of the will of God, its author. The opponents of infant baptism spread among the simple folk the notion that Many years passed after Christ's resurrection, during which infant baptism was unknown. In this they are most shamefully untruthful, for indeed, there is no writer, however ancient, who does not regard its origin in the apostolic age as a certainty. So indeed, as Calvin says, that's a fact that we find as we read the writings of the ancient church fathers. But before we go there, let's stick with the history as written in the New Testament. When early Jewish believers were told that circumcision was no longer the sign of entrance into the covenant, that it was not required that people be circumcised to be in Christ, some of them threw an absolute fit. 
Read the book of Acts and Paul's letters and you'll find this. We find evidence throughout the book of Acts, especially in the events that lead up to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And we find Paul arguing against this this position that you must be circumcised to be in Christ in his epistles. Now, what would those same people have done? What would have happened if those same people had also been told, and also your children are no longer in the covenant too? They're not entitled to the outward sign of the covenant. Well, those same people would have thrown another fit. But there's no such fit to be found in the Bible or in the records of the early church. In fact, all of the ancient church fathers who speak about baptism uh, consider baptism of covenant children to have been the normal practice of the church from the time of the apostles. We just don't find anyone saying otherwise. In the early centuries of Christianity, any time a new practice arose that was not from Scripture, we would find theologians and pastors objecting to it. They'd be asking, where did this come from? I don't see this in the Bible. Uh, whether it was prayer to saints. I mean, one of the great ironies of church history is uh, how much uh, Augustine of Hippo wrote against people venerating saints and praying to them. And now people pray to him and call him St. Augustine. <laughs> the prayer to saints, veneration of Mary, the rise of the papacy. We might even note something that we point out frequently, the adding of musical instruments to public worship. You can actually find, you can trace when that happened and people saying, "What? wait, what's this? It's new. There were always church fathers who objected to these things that were new as something I don't see in Scripture. There is no such objection to infant baptism ever stated by any church father in any of the many, many volumes of writing that we have. Indeed, as I was researching this, the only controversy that I could find about baptism in the early church came in a letter of Cyprian of Carthage to a man named Phytus. Phytus was concerned that it was unbiblical to baptize a baby who was not yet eight days old. He thought since baptism is circumcision, and so that tells us they saw the connection in the early church, he said, shouldn't we at least wait until the eighth day? That's what we had to do with, bat- with uh, circumcision. And basically the answer that he received from a council of elders, and Cyprian wrote the letter on behalf of them, was that the timing of eight days was more or less a, an Old Covenant ceremonial aspect, which were not bound by the ceremonial aspects of the Old Covenant law anymore, and so, so the church is free to baptize whenever. The children of believers can be baptized as soon as convenient, they said. But Phytus' concern shows us that early Christians understood that covenant theology of the connection between circumcision and baptism, and that children of believers were entitled to that covenant sign just as they were in the Old Testament. The Bible clearly teaches that children of believers are in the covenant. The promise was to Abraham and his heirs and to their children, and the heirs of Abraham are all of those who have faith in Christ, as Paul teaches in Galatians. Therefore, the promise belongs to believers in Christ and to their children. And so the sign of that covenant promise is appropriate for and belongs to the children of believers. God exhorts you to not neglect this great privilege and responsibility. And that's really our only application and exhortation today. Do not Neglect this great privilege and responsibility, for the promise is to you and to your children.
Let's pray. Lord, let us not neglect the wonderful privilege you've given us, for which we are thankful that you've given us the sign of baptism as a sign of being in your visible covenant people, and we thank you that you include our children in that covenant. We would ask that you would grant that each of the children here or the children of anyone here who has not yet professed faith in Christ would be changed in heart by you, would grow up into that faith, and that each one of us who is in the faith of Christ would grow up to the fullness of the image of Christ. That we might see that those who are baptized and in the visible church would also show by the fruits they bear that they are in your invisible church. We pray that we would remember the duty to rightly apply this covenant sign to all to whom it belongs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.